I think one of the important things that the Quad countries has to do, in fact, it is an imperative, is that it is high time that there has to be a collective imposition of checks and costs on China's revisionist and destabilizing exercise of power. It is time to impose the costs. Whether it is economic decoupling, whether it is increasing uh, joint exercises, but there has to be a pushback of a, of a certain kind because otherwise the region's stability uh, is going to uh, be affected and wounded probably to a stage where uh, it can be uh, very dangerous for the region's uh, continuing stability and survival. Welcome back to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Today, we have Editor-in-Chief Naito-san, Senior Editor Susan Komori, Journalist and Writer Ariel Bisetto, and our special guest for today is Dr. Monica Chan-Soria. Dr. Monica Chan-Soria is a Senior Fellow at the Japan Institute of International Affairs, Tokyo. She was among the expert speakers at the 2015 UN Meeting of Experts on Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems held in Geneva within the framework of the Convention of Certain Conventional Weapons. In 2008, she received a doctorate in International Relations from the School of International Studies at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Subsequently, she was awarded the Hermes Postdoctoral Fellowship in Paris and fellowships at Sandia National Laboratories in the United States and Hokkaido University here in Japan. Dr. Chan Soria has authored five books, the first in 2009, Chinese WMD Proliferation in Asia, US Response, and her latest, China, Japan, and Senkaku Islands, Conflict in the East China Sea Amid an American Shadow, published in 2018, was also reviewed on Japan Forward. All her titles are available on Amazon. Dr. Chan Soria has written for the Sunday Guardian and is a contributor with Japan Forward, with over 60 pieces published since 2017. Her article, Biological Weapons, the focus of China's military research in the last 20 years, was the most read article on Japan Forward in 2020. Today, we welcome Dr. Monica Chan Soria to the Real Issues, Real Voices, Real Japan podcast. Thank you so much, um, uh, Galileo, for um, inviting me and also a very warm greeting message from India, uh, where I am currently. I also want to place on record uh, my gratitude and eternal thanks to the entire team at Japan Forward, especially uh, the senior editor, uh, Ms. Komori, and um, uh, senior editor and editor-in-chief of Japan Forward, uh, Naito-san, and uh, one of the very, very uh, prolific contributors, Ariel, whose pieces I consistently read. So it's great to be part of a very enthusiastic and uh, proactive team. And I'm so glad to be part of this journey since 2017, and uh, which is still going on. So thank you. No, thank you very much. And thank you for your contributions. And let's get into today's session. So earlier this year, you published with us 2021 Security Priority, Better Integration of Indo-Pacific Partner Nations. Um, this brings together issues that generated much of the turmoil in 2020 and points us towards an, an agenda for the coming year. 
So I guess the first question that we have is what key changes in the geostrategic landscape in 2020 led you to identify this as the priority? You know, when discussing the newer elements and concepts um, in this future of the Indo-Pacific all through 2020 and 2021, um, there have been noticeable elements of both uh, continuity and change that have to be taken into account. So... In terms of the elements of change, what has been extremely profound is that the COVID pandemic, which originated in Wuhan, China, um, is continuing to witness how profound a non-traditional security issue, in this case, namely a pandemic, can be to human survival and the well-being of peoples and states. COVID-19 has resulted, as we speak, in 2.3 million deaths globally. And this has happened without a single bullet being fired. These are the latest figures. The pandemic has destabilized global economies. There are poverty and hunger levels which have reached unprecedented uh, figures. It highlights that its socioeconomic impact has been far more devastating than the pandemic itself. It is in this light, perhaps for the first time, that we see a non-traditional security issue racing past the traditional facets of security, pushing the framework of military and state securities, which have been traditional aspects of security under discussions uh, since ever, especially uh, the Cold War, the pre-Cold War and the post-Cold War period. This has also forced the the, 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 the world at large to look for policy approaches and global solutions. So as we begin 2021, we are likely to see issues such as climate change, human epidemics taking center stage. The past year has uh, underscored the referent of security is no longer just the state in terms of the state sovereignty or territorial integrity per se, but it is also has to take into account people, their survival, their well-being, both at the individual and at the nation level. So I think this is a major element of change where we see a non-traditional aspect of security coming center stage. And in fact, uh, Just a few days back, we had the 2021 Davos Agenda Summit of Global Leaders, where uh, the French President Emmanuel uh, Macron, uh, he actually focused on tackling inequality and climate change as manifest in the larger ambit of the linkages to the pandemic. So that was a very important statement coming from the French head of state, uh, because the crisis has been a far more, more deeper moral one. Um, you know, so I think at that, uh, this is the major element of change that I would like to highlight. But coming to the, 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 the crux of your question, which is hardcore security and foreign policy uh, agenda related, I think the pandemic has triggered an overalling of the security agenda in many countries and regions across the Indo-Pacific. Uh, the geostrategic and military maneuvers, which have been undertaken by China in the summer of 2020, when the world was in the midst of this pandemic, showcase Beijing's endless pursuit of revising the existential status quo. Um, you know, this actually applies to all of Beijing's existential uh, uh, territorial disputes, whether it is the East China Sea to the South China Sea and uh, closer home uh, in the Himalayan borderlands. All these regions have experienced a visible uh, disturbance of the pre-existing status and efforts to shift the power balance. COVID-19, for that matter, has undeniably reshaped the 
um, geostrategic landscape across the Indo-Pacific with dramatic consequences. Um, there are many vital economies that are engaging in conspicuous you know, decoupling from China in key economic sectors. For that matter, there has been noticeable international pushback in terms of the security agenda vis-a-vis China. And there has been a concurrence between uh, leading countries of the Indo-Pacific on devising strategies to boost economic resurrection and development while strengthening the strategic environment across the region. I think Asia's contemporary political strategic reality is going to be an apparent conflictual binary primarily between Washington and Beijing, but the regional players in Asia are going to play a very important role. So uh, this brings to highlight the continuity of the Quad's relevance in the Indo-Pacific strategic construct and Washington's decision to build upon and carry forward the four-nation Quad, which was recently acknowledged by U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, uh, has been a very positive and a welcome announcement for the region. So I think uh, in, in, in the larger strategic sense, we see uh, an overalling of the strategic agenda given the, the, the primary events of 2020, uh, the summer, and which uh, happened simultaneously on multiple fronts. So there was activity, uh, there were attempts to change status quos, uh, push back uh, the existential status quos by China in the East China Sea. Uh, with the Chinese Coast Guard and uh, in the South China Sea, which has been going on since 2012 for that matter. And what happened with India in the Himalayan uh, uh, region uh, was for the world to see. And uh, it just made um, the situation uh, extremely precarious uh, between India and China on the border issue. What about um, Japan in particular had its own issues and you you touched upon the East China Sea, but can you uh, maybe develop that a little bit more? how did China push the envelope or, or try to push the envelope? You know, uh, the situation, uh, the manner in which it has been developing uh, you know, vis-a-vis uh, Japan in particular and Northeast Asia at large. So whether it is, uh, you know, uh, continuing to prep up uh, North Korea, uh, whether it is pushing the Chinese Coast Guard and especially the latest law, according to which the Coast Guard directly comes under the PLA and the Central Military Commission. These are issues and these are some very important developments which have to be taken into account. In fact, uh, uh, the Chinese Coast Guard is one of the most, um, it could be a, mo- a very, very potent uh, uh, should we say a law law enforcement agency or a paramilitary uh, sort of a uh, organization, which is going to play a very important role in the East China Sea issues. And uh, the very fact that uh, every now and then uh, there are Chinese Coast Guard vessels coming and and, uh, notching up tensions in the region, uh, it is a constant reminder. And you see this happening on two fronts, particularly in the region, if if you see. One is in the in the East China Sea, uh, in and around the Senkaku Islands. And the second, uh, ever since uh, President Biden has taken oath as the president, we see uh, a barrage of uh, Chinese uh, fighters, jets, uh, airplanes, uh, violating the airspace of Taiwan. So they are getting into the Taiwan air identification zone at unprecedented levels. Now, there is a clear signaling as, as far as, as how I read it, because primarily what the message, uh, the, 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 the 
the Chinese leadership and the party's leadership for that matter, is trying to give out is that they are going to be handling the Taiwan issue with stealth. They will be handling the Taiwan issue, uh, all right, the the near-term solace that the region can draw is that, all right, probably, you know, Taiwan will not be uh, getting up tomorrow and declaring de jure independence, or, or for that matter, the DPP or, or President Tsai. But at the same time, uh, China's long-term rejuvenation goal, uh, especially in a year where the party is all get, getting uh, ready to uh, celebrate its centennial in July this year, is, is a very important message. So be it the East China Sea, be it Taiwan, the waters around Taiwan, the airspace around Taiwan, the signaling and the, the modus operandi is pretty much similar. It is just that um, the, the area is slightly different. Well, you alerted us on the Coast Guard issue last June, and the law took effect in February, and finally other media began to take notice of it as soon as it took effect. Uh, but uh, I, I just wanted to put in a plug that you your article on that alerted us to this issue coming up. Uh, and now you've written about the Taiwan issue as well, but uh, after right after your New Year's piece. But what I'd like to ask you is, okay, what can other uh, the Quad countries now do to respond to China's uh, aggression and the new laws it's putting in place to sort of bolster itself? Um, you know, one of the things that the Quad countries need to do and they should do is uh, call the bluff. For example, um, I remember, I think um, if I'm not uh, wrong, it was somewhere in September 2020 last year, in the in the heart of of the pandemic, uh, Xi Jinping uh, addressed the United Nations General Assembly. I think it was September 2020, um, and uh, he adopted uh, a, a rather masquerading tone um, and and stating that you know China would never really seek hegemony or expansion or expanding the sphere of influence. Um, he actually used all these words and uh, they said and uh, well, the the statement which really came out was that we are not interested in either fighting a cold war or a hot war with any country but uh, the ground reality as he was talking was so different yeah so the ground reality was that there was active chinese maritime movement in the south china sea it in the east china sea in the, the border between india and china and uh, they are they were they were activities which were being recorded so i think um these facts will go down in the archival record books as the antithesis to beijing's rather misleading diplomatic statements so i think one of the important things that the quad countries has to do in fact it is an imperative is that it is high time that there has to be a collective imposition of checks and costs on China's revisionist and destabilizing exercise of power. It is time to impose the costs, whether it is economic decoupling, whether it is increasing uh, joint exercises, but there has to be a pushback of a, of a certain kind because otherwise the region's stability uh, is going to uh, be affected and wounded, probably to a stage where uh, it can be uh, very dangerous for the region's uh, continuing stability and survival. So recently, some other countries have also um, put their two cents worth in, I think the French uh, and the British among them. Um, do you see them joining the Quad or do you see them playing a larger role in the region as, as the response to Beijing comes into form? 
I think uh, there are a couple of developments which have happened, which are extremely promising, very, very positive and welcoming. One is that the Quad, we had the ministerial meeting of the Quad uh, around October last year, uh, where uh, the, the foreign ministers of the Quad countries met in Tokyo. And uh, what, I'm, what I'm gathering is that um, there, there is a likelihood, and that's a very positive signal by the Biden administration, that uh, the United States is pushing for, and this is still in, in the discussion stage, but the United States is pushing for a leaders meeting of the Quad. Now, this is going to be a first of its kind, and we'll have the leadership of the four quad countries meeting, uh, even if it is uh, an online uh, sort of a interaction. But I think it will be a very important signaling. It will be a political message at the highest uh, uh, echelons of power. And uh, it will be a very, very welcome step for the regions um, coming together as a cohesive group. And um, in the long run, if the if the leaders meeting happens, I probably see that probably in a year or so, we might have uh, uh, United Kingdom, France as important uh, uh, partners or, uh, you know, special invitees or in some capacity or the other joining in uh, in the conversation. At the same time, um, on the sidelines of the quad per se, we are expected to see trilaterals happening. So a, a recent trilateral which has been introduced is the India-Japan-France trilateral. We've had uh, Australia-Japan-US trilateral. Then there is the India-Australia-US trilateral and uh, India-Japan-Australia uh, trilateral. So there are multiple trilaterals which are also functioning. So it will be very interesting to have uh, the sideline trilaterals also, you know, merge in with the larger quad dialogue per se. And that brings greater amount of synergy when it comes to uh, the, the discussions of policy at the discussion stage and also during the implementation stage. So I think that brings a lot of uh, positive synergy and coherence to the dialogue and the understanding between these countries. You mentioned before that uh, obviously two, 2021 is a very important year because it's the centennial of the Chinese Communist Party. We're seeing a transition of the administration in the U.S. from Donald Trump to Joe Biden and as a consequence, a reassessing of the relationship with China. Uh, what do you think is the best case scenario for all countries involved, for example, in the Quad, uh, in the context of you know, shared security and rebuilding uh, in this period? I think, Ariel, you know, when you just look at this entire situation from a political prism, it appears that China has proven that it's political, I mean, at least that is the image that they are trying to sort of send out that their own political system is rather insular to domestic or external events. So we see, uh, you know, the, the manner in which the Hong Kong issue is being dealt with, the Uyghur issue is being dealt with, the Tibetans per se, that that region is being dealt with, I think. So they are they're attempting to give that image. But at the same time, this is a very, very important year for Xi Jinping. As you said, it's a centennial uh, of the of the party. Um, he's leading the party into 100 years of its existence. Um, so I think uh, my assessment is that Xi Jinping is all likely to go into the CCP's um, centennial year with greater military stealth. And he'll mm -hmm. be giving in a lot of military push into the Indo-Pacific. This is not just to... Uh, 
strengthen China's hold in these regions uh, strategically. But this is also messaging the domestic audience inside China. This is also messaging the audience um, uh, across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, to to the uh, to the uh, Taiwanese, you know. So I mean, by doing uh, the undertaking these measures, he will be giving out multiple messages both within the mainland and outside the mainland. Uh, that said, I think. Another very important factor that we need to keep in mind is that he will be garnering and maximizing his domestic power in 21 because this Mm -hmm. year is a lead up to the fall of 2022, where he actually goes in for an unprecedented third term as the general secretary of the CCP. He takes over as, again, the chairman of the all-powerful Central Military Commission. And uh, there's a great amount of focus also on uh, the 14th uh, five-year plan, which is now, uh, 2020 saw the end of the 13th five-year plan. So now they're into the 14th five-year plan, which will which have a very categorical message in terms of their defense policy, uh, the, the budgetary allocations, uh, in terms of what is the larger perspective that they see for the next five years of the of the party and PRC per se as a nation state. And the National People's Conference is also coming up. So uh, this year and next year politically is, is, is um, there are just too many things happening inside China and which have ramifications for uh, the entire Indo-Pacific region. And of course, definitely for East Asia, particularly. Sounds like a dangerous year ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, you know, this is a dangerous year ahead of us. And uh, I think the next year is uh, Beijing Winter Olympic Games. So uh, <laughs> you see the political things uh, together with the Olympic Games comes uh, something, you know, worrisome things as well. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Chan Soria, for your time and joining us. And, you know, your con- uh, comments are really nice. And uh well, even though we're talking about very scary things, though, so, uh, thank you for the contribution uh, to Japan Forward. Please read her article, uh, 2021 Security Priority, uh, Better Integration of Indo-Pacific Partner Nations. And thank you for listeners. And thank you for listening to the uh, Real Issue, Real Voice, Real Japan podcast by Japan Forward. Visit our website for more information about our podcast and the other news from Japan. Catch you next time. Thank you.